So our text for today's sermon um, is on page 10 in your bulletin, but if you look at page 16, you will also see we're in the middle of a series on the Nicene Creed, and we are today in sermon chapter four, uh, uh, sermon number four, and uh, so you'll see what our section of the, con- of the creed is for today. Um, but I want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. From the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was, I, it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts up now and, uh, and do good work in us today. In Jesus' good name, amen. Now, you'll notice that uh, today's section of the Nicene Creed, which uh, says, for our sake, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried, rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You'll notice that is was taken almost verbatim from Paul's creed. See, Paul liked creeds, <laughs> just for the record. And he, he gives a little creed here in verses 3 and 4, and he says, I want to remind you of this kind of main stuff, this stuff that's of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So it's almost exactly the same. And I'd like you to notice that that little creed there in verses 3 and 4 That is how Paul summarizes what he calls in verse 1 the gospel, the good news. And I'd like you to notice the way he describes that gospel at the end of verse 1. This is the gospel in which you stand. He says, I want to remind you guys of the, the main things on which you can be settled. And I think that really is near to my heart as a pastor because... I try not to overread these things, but I can say that in the years of ministry that I've had, I have noticed a marked increase in people of unsettledness. Unsettledness, I'd say it's probably even from my perspective a kind of dramatic 
rise of this, spiritual unsettledness, social unsettledness, psychological unsettledness. And I've noticed a couple of specific ways that younger people seem to be just very unsettled. I find as I talk to young people, and this isn't just young people, but especially younger ones, they, they have a very unsettling sense of responsibility. Because there's, like it used to be in religious societies, you kind of needed to please the gods, and you're responsible to do that. And if you weren't meeting that standard, you could have a problem with God, a problem with your elders, you know, maybe be shunned or shamed by your community or whatever. It's not that way now, but it's still that way now. Because even in a pretty godless society, there's this sort of vague standard that when you're young, you have this feeling, I'm supposed to kind of rise to this somewhat undefined standard of being the right kind of person. Like, you don't want to be the wrong kind of person. You need to be a good person the way our society defines a good person. It's not the way we used to define it in religious times, but you don't want to be a bad person. You want to be an authentic person, because if you're not authentic, you're not the right kind of person. You want to be a fully authentic person. You've got to figure out how to be that. You need to be a successful person. God forbid you're not successful. You need to be your best self, whatever that possibly could mean. You need to be a right-thinking person. Don't be like those wrong-thinking people over there. You need to be on the right side of history. You know, you kind of need to have it together in how you look at the world and how you live. Oh, and by the way, in addition to all of that, you need to be smart, funny, beautiful, fit, and rich, preferably. Like, you know, because you don't want to be a loser. And there's this weird feeling of like kind of needing to justify your existence and rise to this sort of undefined standard. And there's just a real sense of like, it's heavy. I, I, young people today, I, when I talk to them, they are stressed by that often. But I also notice there's not just an unsettling sense of responsibility, there's a very unsettling sense of vulnerability. Now you can make the case that this is maybe somewhat more acute in our modern time, but I think a lot of young people, and many of us, feel that there's just a lot of stuff you can't control and it's really, your life is vulnerable to being invaded and violated and disrupted by this stuff. Many, many of us have this sense, there's just stuff inside of my own head that I can't control cultural forces, you know, people talk more and more about we feel like we're living in the machine, kind of overpowered by it, it's kind of just taking over our lives, political systems, oppressions of various kinds, certain communities feel that even more than others, and there's just a sense of vulnerability, and, and that un, the unsettling responsibility and vulnerability, it's interesting to think about this, because when we come to what we call the gospel, the good news, the gospel tells you and me that we are actually more responsible than we realize, and we are more vulnerable than we realize, but Jesus has given us freedom and peace. And I just want to think about that today. And I want to start with our twofold problem, because it kind of relates to that sense of responsibility and vulnerability. We have a twofold problem <clears throat> as human beings, and to understand Jesus' death, right? He was crucified for our sins. To understand Jesus' death and why it was necessary, we have to go back to this thing we call sin. And really, we have to go back to Adam. It's interesting that Paul says in verse 22, as in Adam all die. So he kind of jumps from Adam to Christ. <clears throat> and I just want you to think about this with me. So in, in the beginning, you know, when God made the world, you know that he made a man and a woman, and he, they were going to be the parents of the whole human race, right? All of us are going to come from them. And God put Adam and his wife in a garden. And as you kind of look at what was going on with the garden, uh, you, you realize that this garden was a special place. 
it was actually a garden temple because it's very clear in the early pages of Genesis that this is a place where God and man were going to be in fellowship together. God would visit Adam and Eve here. They would worship him here. It was to be a place where God and man would relate to one another in friendship. God is the father, Adam and his wife as his children ruling the garden. And Adam had a very special role in that garden temple. <clears throat> he was to rule over that garden for God as a king with his queen. You know, they would rule the garden, they would cultivate it. Some of you have worked in gardens, you know this takes quite a lot of work. They would make this garden fruitful, they'd make the garden beautiful, they would rule it. And importantly, they would not just rule over the garden, they would guard the garden. The, the way that Genesis speaks of it, they would keep the garden because Adam was not just a king but a priest. And it was part of his work, if you want to think of it this way, to kind of pat patrol God's temple and make sure that nothing defiled this place that was God's place. Nothing would happen here or enter here that would dishonor God the high king. And it's just a beautiful picture, and you can imagine <clears throat> as you read it, Adam and Eve's children and children's children and children's children's children is doing this for generations and going out and building other garden temples all over the world. It's just lovely to imagine, and yet very early we have this moment when God set before Adam a fork in the road, a fork in the road in the form of a tree. He said, don't eat of its fruit. And the fork in the road was this. Adam could either continue on in faithfulness to his father king. He could continue to be, to be obedient. He could continue to worship God as God. He could continue to serve as the king and the priest in this temple. That was one fork in the road. And that would eventually lead to greater dominion. Having been entrusted with small things, God would entrust great things to him. The other fork in the road was to essentially declare his independence. To try to be as God himself. Now at the fork in the road as you're reading it, <clears throat> something very unexpected happens. There's nothing that prepares us for this in the story. There is an evil power on hand. The origins of this power are not specified. We're given no information about it. There's an evil power in that moment on scene. It takes the form of a serpent. And this evil power is extremely interested in the outcome of this fork in the road. Because this evil power hates the human race. Hates it. Hates God and therefore hates human beings because we are made in God's image. Hates us. And if these humans at that fork in the road choose independence, if they start a war with God, this power knows that from that moment on, this power can goad the humans on and on and on down that road of trying to be independent from God, and the end of that road will be absolute ruin, and he will love it. And so he's on hand, and he kind of drops some hints of how perhaps which fork you ought to take in the road. Now, there's also something to notice there. There's another thing in play in that moment, and it's not made explicit until quite a bit later in the Bible. In committing himself to one of those two forks in the road, Adam is committing, this is hard to hear, but Adam is committing all of his posterity. Now, no matter how un-American or unfair that may seem, that is how it is. Before God, in that moment, in that fateful decision, Adam represents us, all of us, all human, the entire human race. 
And if he falls in that fork decision, the entire human race is going to fall with him. If he brings down God's wrath and curse on himself by challenging the high king and choosing the path of independence, God's wrath and curse will fall on all of his posterity. And if he puts himself under the serpent's power and goes with the temptations of that evil one who is at hand, all of his posterity will be enslaved to the serpent. That is the haunting truth behind Paul's words, in Adam all die. Well, that's exactly how the story plays out, isn't it? Adam chooses the fork of independence. He is driven with his wife from the garden. And it affects his entire posterity because from that moment on, every single one of his offspring will be born outside the garden. Outside in exile, in alienation from the father king in his temple. And from birth, it will not just be that they have a God problem. They have a serpent problem too, all of us. Because from birth, everyone born to Adam and Eve over the generations right down to 2023, from birth, the lie, capital T, capital L, the lie the evil one told. You can be like God. You can be your own. That lie from birth will have a deep hook in the hearts of every one of these offspring. And it will lead to untold rebellions of their own and further wrath from God upon them all. And so the human race from that moment has a God problem, which is we are all under his wrath and curse, and we have a serpent problem, which is, that, as Paul puts it elsewhere, we are slaves of sin. But there is more to the story. Some of you know this. It's probably the most shocking thing. Before God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, in fact, before he even pronounced judgment on them, he turns to the serpent, and he says, there is a snag in your plan. The humans may have sided with you, serpent, in a war against me. But the snag is, I'm siding with them in a war against you. I am setting the woman and her seed against you and your seed, serpent. And you should be looking from this day forward. You should be looking for one from the line of the woman who is going to crush your power and is going to bring your plans to nothing at great, at great personal cost to himself because you will strike him even as he crushes your head. So be on notice. It's not so simple as you've planned. And that promise is the beginning of what we call redemptive history. See, brothers and sisters, history is not just history. History is redemptive history. Redemption is a word that comes from the ancient slave trade. You could buy a slave out of slavery. You could pay a price to free them from slavery. And from this moment on, God has promised that the price will be paid to bring God's people out of their slavery, to break their chains, to crush their oppressor, and God, having paid that price to redeem them from slavery, is going to bring them back home to live with him in his presence once again, bring them all back home. This is now redemptive history. And from that moment, as you probably know if you've read it, the entire thing we call the quote-unquote Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it's a story then of expectation. It's a story of awaiting. We are waiting for that someone to crush 
the serpent and to bring us home again. And really, when you think about it, what we're talking about is we need a king to conquer the serpent, and we need a priest to bring us back home. And so between Adam and Christ, you know, it's quite a lot going on in those 39 books. God raises up in that story quite a lot of kings, quite a lot of priests. They were anointed. There was this uh, ceremony where they would pour oil over the head of a king or uh, over the head of a priest. And and in in that anointing ritual, uh, they were set apart to serve God. And actually, do you know the word uh, Mashiach in in Hebrew, Messiah, or in Greek, it's uh, Christos, Christ, Messiah and Christ, they're just two different languages, same, same meaning though, they just mean anointed one. And so in a way, these kings and priests between Adam and Jesus, they're kind of like little Christs, they're little anointed ones, and it's interesting to watch their stories, their important stories, because they crush some little serpents, you know, uh, an Egyptian here, a Philistine there, you know, it, it's good stuff. They, they crush little serpents, uh, there are priests, they offer sacrifices that bring God's people a little bit closer to him, like we're inside some of the curtains, But as you might expect, there's a problem with all of these little Christs, and that is that every one of them is a sinner, and every one of them in the end takes the fork that Adam took, and they die. None of these little Christs can challenge that great serpent, that great evil power who remains at large and in charge. Not only, interestingly, as you read through the Old Testament, not only very much in charge of the pagan nations, blinding them with false gods and violence and oppression, all kinds of horrible stuff, But that serpent still has his hooks deep in the hearts of God's own people, the people we call Israel. And in fact, Paul says there's something very weird. If you notice, God gives Israel this thing called the the Torah, God's own word to them to teach them like this is what the good life is. And do you know what the problem with the Torah is? The more you read and study and absorb the Torah, the more you realize we don't live like this. God gives us his perfect law, but our hearts are a mess. And so the law makes it only clearer how much the serpent still is in charge. And none of these priests, no matter how impressive, can ever, ever tear down that curtain, that veil that shuts humankind out of God's holy presence. That's our twofold problem. Now let me say something about Christ's double cure for that twofold problem. Now you know the history between Adam and Jesus matters quite a lot. But Paul skips over it, doesn't he, in this text? It's interesting, Paul doesn't, get, you don't, there's no mention of, you know, Moses, Aaron, David, the prophets, nothing. He just jumps right over. Uh, the, the prob, he jumps right from the problem that we inherited from Adam, which is that in Adam we all die, and he jumps straight to this one he calls Christ, the anointed one, Christ with a capital C. In Adam all died, in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, we saw this last week, the Nicene Creed tells us that this Christ, this one he calls Christ, Jesus, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, straight out of the Bible. This one we call the Christ, the anointed one, he is from the Virgin Mary, which is to say he is the woman's seed. He is that exact person that God was talking about back in the garden when he said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, here he is. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He is a human being of the woman's seed. But it's interesting that the creed tells us, by the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He took flesh of the Virgin Mary, but this happened by the Holy Spirit so that he was kept from sin. He is the first human being since Adam to be born free of sin. He does not share Adam's guilt. He is not one of those Adam represented. 
he's outside that altogether. He does not have a God problem because he is born perfectly righteous, a sin nature, sorry, a human nature with no sin nature. No guilt and no corrupt nature. He, he, he has neither the God problem of being guilty because of Adam's sin, nor the serpent problem of having a corrupt nature where from the very womb he's already in the grip of the, certain, of the serpent. He already has sin at work within him. Neither of those is true because he's born of the Holy Spirit, kept from Adam's guilt, kept from Adam's nature. Here he is, a pure human for the first time since Adam, and so he, you know, he's born and he squirms and he you know, does little toddler things and eventually grows up. And throughout his life, this Christ is offered again and again that fork of independence. Again and again. I mean, say, the, the, the evil one is just on him to swerve. And he steadfastly refuses the serpent's temptations and he obeys his father's will impeccably without exception perfectly. But crucially, like Adam, Christ is not here to act just for himself. As with Adam, by God's design, this Christ, this new human, he is here because God sent him to represent us. As in Adam, as our representative, all die, so in this Christ, as our representative, all will be made alive. How? How's that going to happen? Well, the creed tells us, and Paul says it here too, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That is how God is going to do this thing of bringing us back alive, and I love that little phrase, under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate because that is a little reminder that what we're talking about here is history, not myth. You can read other histories besides the Bible that will tell you about Pontius Pilate. He was a real historical figure, and Jesus was crucified in history under this Roman governor. But it is not just a mere human execution that's happening here. Many, many, many people were crucified under Pontius Pilate, but this is not a mere human execution. This, the Bible tells us, because he's this particular human, this crucifixion is what the Bible calls atonement, atonement, a word that gives the idea that God is removing sin. He died, Paul says, for our sins. It is a death that atones. He is the long-awaited payment to free God's people from slavery to the serpent and to bring them back home to live with God in peace. That's what this death is. And I'd like you to notice that Jesus, in dying for our sins, he begins not with our serpent problem, but with our God problem. He begins with God's wrath and curse. That is what must most fundamentally be dealt with. And so the Bible tells us as God's anointed priest, in that part of his Christhood, he takes his own blood. His, the blood is, is, is life. And, and Jesus' blood represents his perfect, righteous life. And he takes that offering of his perfect, righteous life, and he offers that to bear God's wrath on sins that he himself never committed. Jesus was not offering his blood 
because God's wrath and curse are being poured out upon his sins, as you know. He died for our sins, so he is taking our sins, and he offers his blood. Take my life, Father, my perfect, obedient life, all that you require. Take this for them. Pour out your wrath on me in their place. And the Bible tells us that, he did, that it, it, in fact, it did satisfy God's justice because he offered that sacrifice of his own blood as our priest. He offered that not in an earthly tent. He went all the way into God's eternal heavenly presence, the innermost, innermost, innermost sanctum of God's own presence, and he offered it there. And so that's why he could say on the cross, having done that, it is finished. And you know it well, the curtain tears from the top to the bottom. The God problem that we have had since Adam is resolved. We have been redeemed. The price has been paid. And that moment of that priestly offering, the Bible tells us, was simultaneously the moment of his supreme kingly victory. So in acting as our priest, he was also acting as our victorious king. Why? Because he also dealt with the serpent problem, didn't he? The serpent is absolutely powerless against people whose sins have been atoned for. If God has lifted his death curse from you, Satan has no power over you whatsoever because how is he going to accuse you if everything he brings up, God says, yes, that's been paid for? How is he going to destroy you and drive you toward ruin under God's wrath and curse when there's no wrath and curse? There's no condemnation. Every one of your sins, in fact, sins you haven't even committed yet, Jesus has already paid the price to redeem you from slavery, and Satan has just been defanged entirely. He can sort of stand there and hiss, but he's got no venom. And the only hope Satan has is that the Christ will stay dead. He's been crucified. They put him in a tomb. Nobody's more hopeful than Satan that this will be how the story ends. That he'll stay dead. That as the Corinthians somehow have been duped into believing, there won't be a resurrection. That God will just keep pouring his curse upon him for all of eternity. And that curse will never be exhausted. There will be no life beyond the curse. And then the Christ sits up in the tomb. And it's over. <laughs> It is over. Because now you got a problem if you're in the Lord of hell. There's a new life after death. A new life post-death over which the serpent has no claim whatsoever. He has no authority to accuse here. He has no power to kill here. There's a new man. Paul calls him the last Adam. He has risen. And with him has risen the entire race whose every sin has been forever drowned in the ocean of God's mercy. This king priest now is beyond the reach of temptation. He's beyond the reach of sin. He's beyond the reach of death. And he is the gardener, not of a little temple in Eden. He is the gardener of the world. And he's going to take it all back. And he's going to fill the earth with the glory of God as God intended. He's going to start that work by taking little human hearts and lives and turning them into living temples. And in these little living temples called believers, you and me, beloved, there is no sin that will ever happen in this temple for which his priestly work does not atone. 
And there is no serpentine thought or impulse in these temples that his kingly power will not subdue. These blood-bought lives, Paul tells us, are not their own. And so in them, under the tending of this lordly gardener that we call the Christ, God will be glorified. There's an old hymn called Rock of Ages that has a very interesting line in it. It says in prayer to Jesus, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Save me from the God problem. Save me from the serpent problem. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. He saved us from sin's guilt and power. And I want to close by observing that when you meet somebody who believes that, who confesses for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When you can meet someone who confesses that, you're going to notice two things about them. The first thing you're going to notice about them is they're just kind of loose. I don't mean loose in the head, I just mean loose like an athlete. An athlete whose head is in the right place is kind of loose. They're, they're ready to play because they're, they're, they're relaxed. And there's something about one who believes that they've been freed from sin's guilt and power by Jesus. There is something about people like that. They are profoundly at rest. They are profoundly relaxed. They are settled. They stand. Because they can say, through Christ, God, I mean God, God, that God is for me. He's for me. He saw my very worst. He saw the ways I want to go to war against him that I don't even recognize. And he loved me and he gave his son for me. And he's my father now. I am his. I am home. Nothing can separate me ever again. There will never be a curtain between me and this God again. Nothing can separate me from his love. I am at rest. And it just kind of produces this certain looseness. You're just not so wound up inside. Your securities have been answered. Your insecurities have been answered. And because of that looseness that comes in the gospel, that rest that comes with Jesus as our king priest, you'll also notice these people and it, it's not a, not a contradiction. They're also very intense. They're loose, but they're intense, like a great athlete. And here's why they're intense, because God loves me because God loves me, and he does. Because I am God's child, I have come to recognize there are certain things that really, really do not fit who I am anymore. Because the gospel is true and my sins are forgiven and God loves me, there are certain anxieties that don't fit anymore. There are certain lusts that don't fit anymore. There are certain passions. They just don't fit who I am anymore. And I find myself intensely striving to put those away from me because it's like disgusting prison garments and I'm a child of God now, and that just doesn't fit. I am not going to sit on my screen watching certain things. This is not who I am. I am not going to speak to my kids in certain ways, because that's not who I am. I'm not going to sit on my middle-class backside and let the world go on and just keep feeding my lifestyle with more money and neglect the needy, 
because this doesn't fit who I am. I am a child of God. And a world has now opened up to me that was just unimaginable before. There are so much more interesting things to attend to now than self. That old life the serpent sold me as freedom, it was actually slavery, just constantly about me. I, it's like that's just kind of fading, and all this stuff has opened up that's just so much more interesting. I find myself as a child of God realizing I can unironically enjoy God. <laughs> I can actually enjoy talking with my father. I can enjoy getting to know God because he loves me. And I just kind of forget about myself while I'm doing that. And, and more has opened up. I can see people for the first time in my life, all the people around me, these people who used to irritate me and you know, they're just kind of a pain in the neck and uh, suddenly I'm able to see all these people through my father's eyes. See, I had my eyes before, but now, I, now my father gave me his eyes and I'm seeing people and I'm seeing what God sees. And I'm able to kind of start moving toward them with my father's heart. I don't just have to rely on my love. God has put his love in me and I start to move toward people with my father's love and his resources, because I run out of resources. I just, I just dry up after a while, but I have my father's resources, and so relationships are just so much more interesting now. There's so much more possibility here. I don't think and feel and act like a slave of the serpent anymore, and I don't want to think and act and feel like a slave. That life was infantile. I want to think and I want to feel and I want to speak and I want to act like the royalty that I actually am by the almighty grace of God in Christ. I want to start thinking like a son, like a daughter of the almighty God. That's the freedom you have in Christ. And so I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. Amen. Change us through these powerful things, Father, by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.